0: So first I would like to, uh, on behalf of the Faith and Work Initiative, and welcome uh, our students, uh, faculty, staff members, and members in the community are here who take part in this faith and ethics in the executive sweet series. And in particular, uh, Jay, we're delighted to have you here. I'll introduce you more fully in a moment, but thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, For those who are unfamiliar with the Faith and Work Initiative, we convene different gatherings of senior executives like Jay and others. Uh, Remaining in our series, we have uh, a to-be-announced panel on November 7th, and Jim Quigley, the former CEO of Deloitte, who will be coming on the 21st of November, and he will be speaking out of the Mormon tradition. The Faith and Work Initiative has a very simple mission, although it's so simple that it's actually very difficult, and that's to conduct research into and look for practical resources, theoretical frameworks and practical resources into this vortex of faith and work, this intersection of faith and work, uh, with a particular view of how that impacts leadership. We look at it through all different religious traditions with particular focus on the three Abrahamic traditions. To give you a sense of some of the people we've had over the past few years, by the way, we're now entering our sixth year here at Princeton University. Uh, Here are some of the voices and faces. Some are household names, very prominent CEOs. Others also very successful people, but people that you may not know as a household name. And you'll see we have a wonderful mixture of Jewish voices, Protestant voices, Catholic voices, Muslim voices. We did not have the Pope, by the way although we did have a a program on his uh, uh, encyclical, we were talking about that in class today. And Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard Funds, a legendary figure. Warren Green from Fox News. And we've sort of accidentally stumbled into a two-part series we're jokingly calling The Power of Ethics because Uh, Last week's visitor, for those of you who are here, was Ralph Izzo, who spoke out of the Catholic tradition. And he uh, is the head of uh, public service, electric and gas, actually the public service enterprise group as a whole. uh, And he spoke out of his Catholic tradition. And today, we're delighted to have uh, Jay Klein here with us, who will be speaking out of an Orthodox Jewish perspective. One of the things I'm always quick to mention, by the way, when identifying someone out of the religious tradition is that it's a little bit unfair to ask one person to speak for the whole tradition because if you got uh, five different Roman Catholics or five different Orthodox Jews or five different whatever, you'd probably get five different stories and understandings. So that's why we didn't say the Orthodox Jewish perspective, but an Orthodox Jewish perspective. So Jay, we'll, we'll look forward to your thoughts on that. Uh, By the way, our basic ground rules of our time together is appreciative and open inquiry, respectful of where one's tradition is, whatever it may be, and to learn and explore how these faith resources, uh, or how these faith traditions and teachings can be a resource to leaders in the business ethics and uh, and many challenges they face in the modern world. Jay, by way of background, is uh, a New Yorker. He'll tell a little bit more of his personal story, but he's a a Columbia University grad, by the way, so is uh, Ralph Izzo, who was here last week. Uh, And then he got his MBA from NYU and also his JD from NYU. He's been involved in the energy and finance uh, field for a long time. He started his career at Millbank and Tweed, leading their uh, project finance and power utility practice. Uh, From there, he went to Lehman Brothers and also headed up their uh, group head of project finance, again with a specific focus on energy, power, infrastructure, and financial projects. Uh, from there, he became the CEO of U.S. Generating Company, U.S. Power Generating Company. He'll tell some stories from some of those experiences, and currently, uh, he is now the uh, co-chairs uh, Aiken Gump's global project finance practice with particular focus on energy, power, water, transportation, and other infrastructure industries. When we look at the question of infrastructure, both in this country and on the globe, the sum of the space that Jay is dealing in is perhaps the most. A critical, important, and in many ways controversial space of energy resources, environment and the many things that people think about associated with that. So Jay, with no further ado, would you mind coming up to uh, join us and we'll have a little conversation. Yeah, so wrap- you. It's a bit warm, so let me uh, join you by taking my jacket off. Thanks, Jonathan. So and our by the way our flow for the the evening uh, It's very simple, we're going to have a conversation, just chat with each other for uh, a bit, and learn about uh, various things pertaining to this intersection of ethics, business ethics, faith, and so forth. And then we'll open up to a conversation with anyone here who has a question on their mind that they'd like to ask, and our basic ground rules are, uh, any question is fair game, but also for whatever reason you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. Uh, And and you may wonder, am I going to do this interview, this conversation like Jerry Springer, or like (laughs) Oprah Winfrey? and you're in good luck, it's over. So, Jay, we're we're delighted you're here. Thank you for taking such a a big chunk of your time and also to be with uh, class today and many of our students. Uh, Before we get into some of the big subjects that we'd like to talk about, uh, first, could you tell us a little bit about who is Jay the person? Uh, Now, I said you're from New York. Are you many generations New Yorker?
1: No, I am a lifelong New Yorker, but the first generation. I'm a first-generation American a first-generation non-rabbi All of, uh, for many, many, many countless generations, um, both uh, my ancestors from my father's side and my mother's side were rabbis. And I am the black sheep of the family, so it was very nice that you'd introduce to uh, invite me here. Um, my son is a rabbi, so it's a tradition. Is
0: he for your wayward path? He's got a lot of atoning to do. but <laughs> <I> not <want laughs> you the first to go to college in your
1: Yes, I was the first to go to college. Uh, my parents um, were born in Poland. Um, they went through the uh, World War II concentration camps in Auschwitz and uh, others. And after the war, they, my father started a rabbinical seminary with another rabbi in, um, right outside of Frankfurt. It was the first rabbinical seminary in Germany after the war. And... Um, my parents then came to the United States in 1948, and I was born in the United States. Um, then, uh, what but in
0: the States after sort of launching this it looks so like a career in, in, in Germany after war.
1: But it was in a displaced persons camp, ah. and so there was a limited life for the for the camp. People were going to be settled permanently in Israel, the United States, Australia, wherever possible.
0: And if I recall from some of our other conversations, most of your other relatives are. Virtually your killed and now yes that's right true
1: yes, so my father and mother had very large families, and they were all um killed by the nazis and so my my mother um, and father were the only two people in their family to, to be in the United States and then my father died um, when I was a year old, and so my mother brought us up in a remarkable way I mean despite all those experiences, she never lost her optimism her smile, her, just her good, her good spirit of, um, and a, a deep sense of um, just commitment to doing good, her kindness. And uh, it was it's really very hard for me to imagine, um, so perhaps genetic, perhaps, uh, perhaps she was deeply loved when she was a child and it just stayed. And, uh, but um, my mother really taught me. Um, it's extraordinary to, yes.
0: to suffer the horrors of a concentration camp, to, to lose all of your family and to still come out with a sense of hope and grace and love of the it's
1: it, it is extraordinary. And um, I guess a lot of people who survived the camps, a lot of the Jewish people who survived the camps, came out with the ability to form new families and to create new lives in the United States. And so there's a, a very large community that started that way. And I was one of them. Growing up with... Um, in a building of of people who basically were new immigrants and a community of new immigrants, and so I was the first um, Yankee in the in the family, and I um, and I I learned, I embodied the, the spirit of commitment, kindness, good deeds. I mean, there were, if I may just go on for a moment, um, I remember walking with my mother on Broadway, and we had. A, a, no limit of, uh, of homeless and uh, uh, poor people. She would call her money. And, so, and she would always give everybody. She never, never said no to anybody. And when I said to her, well, this person looks like he doesn't need really He's well-dressed, etc. Why are you giving him money? She said, you don't know. That person could be hungry. And you never say no to somebody. You can give to 10 people, and if nine of them really didn't need it, but one of them did, that's terrific. It made it worthwhile to give because you really took care of that person. So that's um, the kind of spirit of, um, of deep empathy, I would say, and a deep commitment to, to doing good and to teaching me and my brother really how to be good people.
0: And This story you just told about giving money to poor people. At the time, she was even herself out of work and not welfare, if I recall. Yeah,
1: she was on welfare at the time.
0: And how does that shape your views of welfare today as a
1: public policy question? <laughs> well, listen, I, I think of the United States, and I learned this from her. The United States was what she called in Yiddish the goldener Medina. It's the golden nation. Why? Because it gave opportunity to people. It rescued um, so many people during World War II who um, would have otherwise perished. It was a, per- a place of morality. She felt a deep Inherent, intense morality, and goodness, and stood for doing the right thing. So, um, and so she gave whatever whatever money she had. She gave a little bit to the poor, who were poorer than her. She felt. That's
0: amazing. Yeah. And you're, excuse me, a second. Are we we live, John? It looks like the other correction.
1: Pardon us. Technology problem. You sound like you're coming across loudly.
0: Testing, one, two, three. Whoa! How about that? Okay, I guess if I turn the button on, that helps. <laughs> now, you're talking about your mother very very fondly. Uh, if I recall, your father died when shortly after you were born, is that right? Yes. So, how did the family survive? It must have been extraordinary. Well, my mother
1: was on welfare, um, and she had borders. We had an apartment. We had um, two borders who were living with us, um, helping to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And then she learned how to be um, a cook mm-hmm. um, in a school. Mm-hmm. So she was a cook. And then she learned how to use um, an old Burroughs uh, um, counting machine. Huh. Um, and I remember testing her on some of the things she was learning in school. <laughs> really? I, was, uh, <laughs> I was nine years old and she was doing her homework and I was testing her. So she, was, she really applied herself. But I really saw this as um, an economy that had real, that really did great things for people. And um, and all she knew, this was a typical, maybe it's a typical Jewish immigrant, Asian immigrant, um, immigrant story, but education was everything. And so if we went to school and we applied ourselves, we could be anything. And she even said to me, she said, you could be the president of the United States. Hmm. Now that's very interesting because she was just a few years out of concentration camps and um, building from the ashes, really. But she thought her son could be the President of the United States, You know that's, um, which is, I guess, true of a lot of people who are immigrants and saw the United States as the land of opportunity. And of course, that's our great challenge today, is to make sure the United States remains the land of great opportunity for our children and for the children of all Americans um, in times when maybe people feel that there's less opportunity. But that's, I think, the sub-theme of our conversation, which is, how to make sure that corporations are moral enterprises, that the business community is an engine for growth, is doing the things that need to be done so that the United States could be a country that really reaches its potential.
0: Let, let me return to that in one moment, this concept of a, of a moral community, business as a moral community. Uh, I want to make tie one other thread, if I can. You, you mentioned you come from a family of... Generations of rabbis, and, and you chose not to be. Uh, do you mind if I ask why? Because uh, certainly there must have been a familial expectation or pressure. Mm-hmm.
1: There actually wasn't. Um, I went to uh, religious schools, to yeshivas, um, and I studied long hours of the day and uh, into the night, mostly religious studies, Talmud, um, Bible, uh, the prophets, etc. And there was a moment in time when I thought to myself, I don't want to be a layman, you know. The word layman in a religious seminar in yeshiva was used with such contempt. You know, there were two categories of people. There were rabbis and there were lay people. And if you're a lay person, it was equivalent to saying you are just an ignoramus. And I didn't want to be an ignoramus. So for a moment, I thought I'd be, become a <laughs> rabbi. But I, um, I enjoyed so much what I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was in college, um, after my fresh, freshman year in college, I became an urban core intern for the New York City Council President's Office. Mm-hmm. And then I became director of research through college. Um, so I was a sophomore and junior director of research for the New York City Council president, and then director of information for the Committee for Economic Development while I was going through college and law school. That was because I got married when I was 18 and we had children. And, you know, I mean, basically, my mother said to me, 18? How could you be getting married at 18? And I said, Well, it says in the Talmud that at the age of 18, you're ready to go to the marriage canopy. And she said to me, now, you decide to become so religious. <laughs> but but anyway, so I got married and we had a family and I worked and, mm-hmm. and I loved it. And it was public work, public mm-hmm. policy work for government. And that led me to think about how lucky I was to have finally come into the energy sector, which was the interface of business and government and politics, and that's what I'd, I'd done for my whole career.
0: Well, just to tie one thread together, we think in our conversations through the Faith and Work Initiative and this class, Business Ethics and Modern Religious Thought, we think about where we see similarities in different traditions. And what you describe as this sort of hierarchy between the rabbi and the layman, that actually echoes itself. You'll find that in many branches of Christianity as well, where there's the ordained priest or a pastor, and then there's the lay person, and there's a certain <coughs> tension which goes with that from time to time. So, so how do you how did you discover energy? Because when you were going up, if I do my history correctly, uh, there was a, sort of an abundance of oil. Oil was cheap. Uh, what, what what got you interested in this field?
1: Well, I went to Millbank Tweed um, after I graduated from law school and business school, and at Millbank, I kept knocking on the door of one new partner at the firm, um, Bob Douglas, who had been secretary and counsel to Governor Rockefeller, and I was very interested in government and policy. And I kept saying to Bob if you ever have any work that you need done, I'd love to do some work for you, and don't worry about the fact that I'm assigned to another partner. I'll get my work done there, and I'll get your work done too. And I, was, I did this on my second day at work, <laughs> and he never responded. So I did it a week later. I knocked on his door again. And he was very polite, very nice, and said, of course, I'll keep you in mind. Thank you very much for your interest.
0: I was there's a polite no thank you. Was,
1: well, he didn't have the work. Okay. As it turned out, but I didn't know that. Right. Still, I really wanted to work for him, so I kept <laughs> knocking on his door. Every few days, I'd knock on his door. And he never threw me out. <laughs> and one day, he called me. and said, we have a new client at the firm. The client is the seven electric utility companies of New York State. Con Edison, Long Island Lighting Company, Niagara Mohawk Power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And would you like to help me? Well, I said, of course. And so little did i know this was a consortium of new york's utility companies that wanted to build all future power plants in new york state jointly they would set up a jointly owned consortium and we turned out to be the counsel to that consortium and i turned out to be counsel to that consortium because bob douglas had a lot of clients he was very busy and he allowed me to do it so for seven years i did nothing but working on this company and i got to know the power industry Mm. ultimately it was turned down governor carey at the time said i'm not approving I'm not going to allow the New York Public Service Commission to approve a super monopoly, which was all the seven electric utility companies in New York State working together to build future power plants, over my dead body, he said. Hmm. And the New York Public Service Commission heard this and they decided to turn us down, not surprisingly. And so there was a front page story in the New York Times about how this consortium was turned down. And I thought I was out of work, but I'd learned something about the power industry and so I stayed involved in the power industry. And that's, and that's how I got to be in the power industry for all these years.
0: And do you have any ethical quandaries with being in that industry? There, there are many, uh, in fact, many students are active in, in d- current uh, divestiture uh, protests and urging the endowment or, in some cases, shareholders, a uh, pension fund, to divest themselves from uh, fossil fuel companies and, and energy uh, companies. H- how do you think about that ethically? I know it's a wide-open question, sure. but take it anywhere you'd like. Sure.
1: Well, for the first seven years of my career, I worked on a nuclear power plant consortium. We were going to be building all future power plants as nuclear power plants and every utility would take its own small share of what it needed of the nuclear power plants and together they would use the full capacity every year of a new nuclear power plant that would be completed at least one power plant a year. That was the vision we had. Of course, this was 1973 to 1978 or so and we had not yet had Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, etc. In fact, people thought of nuclear power as being the greenest um, and safest, lowest-cost form of power um, in, available to the country. So that changed, of course, with Three Mile Island and, and Chernobyl and now Fukushima. But at that time, it was thought to be a really a wonderful, good thing to be doing. Um, my own view is that there's nothing inherently wrong with power. The issue really is you have different sources of fuel, so natural gas is very clean, solar and wind is even cleaner, and coal is dirtier. And the issue, in my mind, was not the, the energy industry. The energy mm-hmm. industry, in my mind, was really quite the engine of growth essential to achieve my dream of the United States as a growing, thriving, vibrant economy, employing people and just doing good for the world. Um, and so I felt like I was really on the right side. I was on the side of the angels. Interesting, interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So angels makes me think of religion again. So okay. you, you come out of, a, as you describe, a, a, an Orthodox Jewish tradition. What's it actually mean for someone maybe who isn't Jewish and uh, may not really understand even that vocabulary? Because, of course, there's different branches of Judaism. Sure. Uh, would you share a minute what, what that means to you, at least? Sure.
1: Well, I think in practice what it really meant was a very strict an attempt to be strictly and consistently observant of the commandments that are um set out in the Bible and interpreted by the rabbis in a, a broad way. So this would and be an addition to the
0: 10 commandments, the 613
1: commandments of the Bible, etc. And in particular, as evidenced by observance of the Sabbath with the cessation of work, observance of the laws of uh, kosher food. And, but to me, in particular, observance of the ethics of such important texts as the ethics of the fathers, that's part of the Bible Um, part of the Talmud um, and um, part of the Mishnah with its very, I think, very high-minded principles of protecting the underprivileged, the downtrodden, loving the um, stranger who lived near you. The Bible says you shall love the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall love the stranger, for you are strangers to the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What that really meant was I view today as um, strangers, the best metaphor would be really immigrants. People who are not natives, and were not landed and rooted in that area, were new. I view them as immigrants. It's basically like saying, you shall love the immigrant who is not native to your area. You were immigrants and strangers in Egypt. I am, and to make it clear that this was extraordinarily important, one of the very rare places in the Bible Saying that I am the Lord your God, so that's how seriously I'm taking it. So you. God's kind of pulling, pulling rank, around. like, like get, exactly. get, read my lips. <laughs> exactly. This, this one isn't a recommendation. <laughs> this is not. Uh, this is not optional. Yeah.
0: So. For the lawyers in the room or future lawyers, there's often a distinction between what you may do, might do, or must do, and this yes. is a must this do. This is a must do.
1: Yeah. Right. But I thought that was very um, inspiring.
0: Yeah. And, and the, 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 the Mishnah, that, that is some roughly, what, 63 different volumes of, uh, right. of tractates or, or books that got pulled together, taking the oral tradition of the rabbis to try to reduce it to paper so it wouldn't just be oral. And, and this is one of those. And in fact, if I recall in Judaism, these six chapters or so that are the, the, uh, the, uh, the ethics of the fathers, sometimes they're studied sequentially on various yes. Sabbath days. That's right. And, and did you do that also growing up or through part of your school? Sure.
1: That was part of my schooling. That was part of the synagogue services. And But the point was, I mean, the most incredibly beautiful things um, stated. Um, I mean, essentially, exhortations to worry about the reputation of your neighbor more than your own, hmm. um, to um, protect the orphan and widow, um, to... Essentially, um, to refrain from speaking ill of somebody, not to think, not to reach an opinion of anybody that's negative until you're in that person's shoes, literally. Um, And fundamentally to me, a view of empathy, um, a view of kindness. And I learned that, I think all of you from different faith traditions will identify in the same way, that Jews were supposed to be people of mercy, the children of people of mercy. In Hebrew, mm. Rachmanim, Bnei Rachmanim. Um, and,
0: and what's meant by that, the children of people mer- of mercy?
1: That mercy is in your genes. Mercy mm. is your middle name, in mm. other words. Kindness, empathy, taking care of people who need to be taken care of, never turning your back on anybody, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Um, thinking, speaking well of people. Mm. Um, never speaking slander of anybody, even if it's true, it was slanderous. Hmm. Um, It was called evil tongue. Um, Hmm. If you spoke things about third parties, that could in any way be embarrassing, no matter whether it was true or not. So there was a a sense of a very high ideal, which I felt um, that I would try to translate in Hmm. whatever I was doing professionally, because it felt very natural.
0: Now some would say that, wow, that's, that's beautiful. But you can only do that if you're in the so-called caring professions, maybe in nursing, or perhaps a, a, a clergy profession of some sort. But to go into the doggy dog corporate world, or bottom rule, <laughs> bottom line rules, how can you be this agent of mercy? How can that be your middle name as a CEO?
1: Well, what I really learned was in every walk of life, in every daily encounter, they all have one thing in common. We're dealing with people. And, and maybe I could take a, a moment out of this to tell you how I looked at dealing with people. Would you? And okay. I know
0: you, maybe a story or to yes, illustrate I'll, it as well. Yes, I'll tell you something.
1: I became chairman and chief executive officer of a company called U.S. Power Generating Company, which owned, owns about a 20% to a quarter of New York City's generating capacity. And that company also owned 50% of Boston's generating capacity. The um, week after we took over these power plants, having bought them from companies who had owned them before, um, I, I ended up um, going to some of our power plants, and I would go to safety meetings, and I made it my thing to go to safety meetings and make sure that our people were safe and did not get hurt. Um, I told them that the last thing in the world I wanted to do was ever to go to a home of any of my 200 employees in New York City and say to the wife or to the husband, I am so sorry to be here. Uh, I just never want to be in that position. So I told our people, if you have any question about whether what you're doing is safe and your supervisor is telling you to do something, stop. Do not do it. Stop. Think about what you're doing. Plan it. Call time out. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things we told our people. So unfortunately, one day um, in one of our power plants in Brooklyn on the, on the waterfront, Um, We have barges on the waterfront that are critical to the reliability of the Brooklyn um, power system. A worker walked to the edge of the barge, fell off the barge, fell down equivalent to four... These are massive structures, right? These are massive structures on the water. They had massive turbines on them, gas turbines or fire turbines. Um, They were producing a massive amount of power. It's just that they were on on, um, moving barges that could be moved.
0: So he falls the equivalent of four stories. Um, so falls,
1: falls the equivalent of four stories, is rescued. Somebody couldn't swim, didn't have any life-protecting vests or anything else um, on him. Somebody throws a rope to him, is rescued, put him to the hospital for um, hypothermia, etc. And I then go the next week to the power plant for a safety meeting. And I'm prepared to talk about this person. And we learned some lessons about safety vests, about... Um, Helmets, etc. for people who are nowhere near anything dangerous, but could fall, you know, so we learned something and to my surprise When I got to the power plant, I was met with such hostility Um,
0: Because actually didn't you go into feeling a little bit uh, smug is perhaps the wrong word But you had paid for his family you had incurred a lot of expenses that might not have been expected normally Exactly we had had kind of of gone above and beyond so to speak. That's
1: right And we were doing that for our people we were I was sending out notes to our people saying because one of our employees had died being misdiagnosed of a disease. I said, here's the name of my doctor, here's a telephone number. If you ever have a need for a second opinion, if you're ever unsure about what you might have, if you're not feeling well, call my doctor. He will send a bill to US Power Generating Company. You will not pay anything, but I want to make sure everybody here gets the medical support that they need. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody ever called this doctor, but I felt like we were doing the right thing. And, um, and, And that's the way it went. And I felt good about our relations with our employees. Get very good relations. When I got to the power plant, somebody, and I'm having this dialogue with our employees in a safety meeting, one person gets up, points his finger at me and says, you don't care at all about us. All you care about is money, making money for your company. You have no interest in, our, in your employees.
0: <laughs> and must I was- have been a little taken your back.
1: I was stunned. I was stunned by that. That was exactly the opposite of what we were doing. So I was thinking about that for a moment and I said, let me tell you how I, how I look at this. I said, we are all made in God's image. I said, we are children of God. You all are sacred individuals. There's nothing more important to me than your safety and your well-being. Don't ever, ever say to me again that all I care about is money. I don't lose any sleep about that. I lose sleep about somebody getting hurt.
0: Bet you could okay. have heard a pin drop after that.
1: Yes. and What, what happened, how they simply, First of all, they had never heard anybody talk to them like that, particularly <laughs> in business, I'm sure, and their mouths were open. And I think they felt that I was being very sincere about this. Um, secondly, I was shocked because I had never talked like that. I mean, to <laughs> talk in business, what led me to say, you're all children of God, you know, you're made in God's image? I mean, that was not exactly what I was doing as a CEO of U.S.
0: power generating Company. Did they teach you that like in that. your MBA program?
1: They never taught me that in my MBA <laughs> program, right? Uh, in fact, I never he- remember hearing the word God in my Unless MBA program. Unless it was program. followed by something else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I felt that, I felt very happy that I said that because it really was obviously what I felt and what I believed, even though I didn't realize that that was kind of underpinning, it was the integrating factor in my way of looking at our relations with our people. And so I felt good about it, shocked at it, and I came back and said to you, you wanted to know about the language of ethics? Here's something about the language of ethics. But to me, the single integrating force in the question of the morality or ethics of a business corporation is belief, for me, belief that we are all created in God's image.
0: What's that mean for you? Why is that such a powerful organizing principle for you? Because what it means is, how
1: would you ever abuse a person who you're looking at and saying, that person, like, like me, was created in God's image? Would you curse that person out in private or public? Would you belittle that person? Would you insult that person, offend the person, Be just be um, indiscriminately <coughs> intolerant? Uh, of anything about that person? No, you wouldn't. Frankly, you'd be worried about that person. Um, so that was one point. Another point was, would you punish that person for infractions lightly? No. You'd want the best for that person. you want that person to learn. So this kind of went on into real-life events um, mm-hmm. that ended up happening
0: um, in, in my career. Where can, can you think of an example where you had to... Uh, some people talk about the tension between justice and mercy, that sometimes a crime is committed and someone, so justice is meted out, and someone suffers a punishment, uh, and other times, and it's a classic religious narrative, both in Judaism, Christianity, other traditions, how, how can one's faith be a form of, uh, of transforming that person, redeeming that person? If you will. How, how do you think about this tension of justice and mercy, or is it even a tension for you? You
1: know, I actually don't see any tension between justice and mercy because I Hmm. think that justice is, in fact, founded on mercy, um, in my mind. Hmm. Um, And here's what the other half of what we mean by saying we're children of God, we're all God's children. It is just as God, we believe, is a merciful God, if we're God's children and created in God's image, then we need to be merciful. Um, At Yom Kippur prayer services, we beg God for forgiveness. and we beg God to show us mercy. And I think the corollary of that is that in our own lives, we have to be merciful. We have to forgive people who did us ill, forgive that person freely. We have to really recognize that just as we want to be forgiven, just as we think God is the God of mercy, we have to be merciful. So to me, there's no issue of justice not being founded on mercy. and when I think about ethics, you know, I have thought about to myself that ethics is actually different than um, morality. And ethics is certainly different than mercy. Here's how I look at it. I, I think of ethics and I think about the rules of our society and the rules of business that are set up so that a society can function well, business can function well with established rules that we as society think are just Um, and feel can be upheld, but they're essentially rationalizing, organizing principles of a a just society. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily focused on the individual who was created in God's image. They're not necessarily focused on the fact that when an individual has done something, you need to think about that individual in the context of that individual and perhaps the redemption of that individual, that they can improve themselves, or in some way to look at the unique facts. And so that is, um, that has been the way I have thought about the role of a chief executive officer, which is, you can't just say I have a policy, and I'm just going to apply that policy to every employee in a corporation, regardless of the nuance of what was done. Um, And maybe that is, takes me into Couple of things. Yeah. In um, in business today, if you falsify your resume or omit significant uh, facts from your resume, you'll be fired immediately. It's it's cause for being for grounds for being terminated. I looked at that, and I had one situation where, in fact, somebody in my company had falsified their resume. This person... Was it a
0: new hire or someone had been working for you for a while? This was a person who had
1: been at my company for 15 years. Okay. And for 15 years, this person was a committed, thoughtful, hard worker who really tried to do a good job. I looked at this person I said, this is a good employee. And one day, <coughs> there lands on my desk a large manila envelope with copies of Google printouts about this person Hmm. showing that this person had embezzled money from a bank, had been convicted of embezzlement, and had gone to prison for several
0: years. So prior to being hired? Prior to being hired
1: by my company in the position to which he had been hired. And essentially, this was putting me on notice that we had a person who was a former convict In a financial position in our company, and who had, we learned, um, because we looked into it, not told us that on his resume. Obviously, he would not tell us that on his resume. But that should have been grounds for firing. And I looked at that and I said to myself, wait a second, why is this anonymous envelope coming to me? Uh The reason that anonymous envelope was coming to me was because this person had done the right thing and had informed. To management, that there was a corruption scheme going on where there were paybacks given to people in the purchasing area in the company.
0: So, this person actually blew the whistle, did the right thing by the 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 company,
1: because that person was offended Mm -hmm. by that type of behavior that didn't reflect clearly his own values in the way he had developed them over the past 15 years as a very loyal employee of the company. And yet, he had falsified his resume. And he had been a, co- a convict, and there was an enormous, enormous coalescing of views of my people, my head of human resources, my chief operating officer, and my shareholders, who were on the board of my company, who basically were concerned that if it became known, as we were about to do an initial public offering of our company, that we had um, on our, we had, and that we allowed to remain a person who had been an embezzler, uh, ex, now an ex-convict, etc., who falsified his resume, that that would look bad um, for us. That was the issue that I think you've called... Um, the optics. The optics of the situation. And I basically took the position that, wait a second, this person is... We are learning this because this person did the right thing. That alone should tell us that this person has paid the price for what that person had done, and was in fact a good citizen, took a lot of risk um, on himself to let that be known, mm-hmm. and that risk in fact materialized for him. And how would we ever fire this person? Anyway, to make a long story short, um, my views did not prevail at the time, and that person, you know, the um, though I was chief executive officer, the. Um, the board um, did um, instruct me to fire him. Um, I felt that that was a big miscarriage of justice. And that also said something to me about this. In all of corporate America, in every company in America, but for a company where a person of enormous focus on the individual rather than on the rules for the thousands of people in the company would take that interest, in all of corporate America, anybody who falsifies their resume will get fired. It's kind of like Human Resources 101. You falsify your resume, you get fired. Um, And what I learned from that was, that may be ethical to fire that person, but it wasn't moral in my judgment. Um, And that's where I kind of began to see that morality is different from ethics in the sense, to me, that morality is a one-on-one Um, examination. You're moral in dealing with a small group, a concrete people, a group of people in a specific circumstance. You can be moral. Um, You can be ethical and not be moral is what I learned. And if I think of business as a moral community which has the responsibility for being the engine of our growth in this country and for really being the engine of innovation, of taking people and helping create work training so that we can get our younger people to work, etc. that that moral community has to be a community that focuses on individuals and not just on broad people.
0: Well, in a way, that ties back also to the, uh, the, the Mishnah readings you were talking about earlier, the ethics of the fathers, that, that there's the sense of uh, your own personal probity, but also the interactions with others, with your fellow human beings. So it's interesting to see that that connection. You've used before and you just did again now the phrase business as a moral community. Now there would be some people perhaps occupy Wall Street, uh, others who have been singed or burned by the excesses. of. We can think of many examples of corporate greed, misuse of power. Uh, many people would say you must be joking. There is, that, that's intrinsically illogical. That, that would never fly. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, I think that There are people who in fact have been guilty of excesses, but I think the bulk of corporate CEOs are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing. Their problem is that they really have not made this distinction. They're trying to do the ethical thing, and so they have practices that make the corporation work better, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But they're generally ethical people trying to do the right thing and trying to help. There are many different stakeholders, not Mm -hmm. just their shareholders. their employees, citizens, environmental, um, health and safety and all of these other important things. Um, so I think that that's, in a way, that's our job. Our, our mission, I think, moving forward um, in this country is to find the way you can have sustainable capitalism that is based on a perception by the American public that business is part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that means that we have to be really thoughtful about what we're doing and how we're doing it And that, number one, our objectives cannot be short-term profits. Our objectives have to be taken care of all stakeholders. And that that is, in fact, a dialogue that's going on right now. There are major business organizations like the Committee for Economic Development that has taken on for itself and for themselves the task of trying to define what sustainable capitalism is and what the social compact is in a world where we're under much greater competition from all over the world, American business is the most competitive sector of global economic society Mm -hmm. and has to remain competitive and yet has to also be moral and has to really earn the trust of American people if they're going to be successful. That's a very big challenge. And we don't have- Huge challenge. And so what I'm saying is that I think we should be setting out this model of business as a moral enterprise, a family of people coming together to work, to be treated properly, and to do right by the growth of society, the employment of people, and the welfare of the country. That can be done. We are not there yet, mm-hmm. but that's really, I think, our challenge.
0: If you look back to your days as CEO of US uh, Power Generating Company, what would you do differently now with this passion you have to create a moral community? What, what would you do differently if you could go back and replay those years? Well, I think
1: I would have resisted more strongly than I did the firing of that individual. Mm -hmm. Um, I could have continued to resist that. I should have because it would have been the right thing to do. And I think that, I think we were very successful in implementing this within our small company. I say small because though it was a very huge company in terms of assets and the impact on New York, it was only 200 people, okay, so we didn't have I didn't have 200,000 people as some large corporations do. It was easier for me to worry about individuals than it would have been for Jack Welch when he was uh, the CEO of General Electric. And I think that um, I would have started earlier on this bandwagon. I think this this, this really has a lot of resonance and I think people will come to realize that American business is not sustainable without a recognition that they have to be seen as being part of the solution and not just being beholden to one part of the stakeholder movement, which is their shareholders. Shareholders, of course, are all important, and we have to take care of our shareholders. But at the same time, you have to take care of our society and of our people. And you will—you will get so much more as a CEO of a company if, in fact, you're worrying about your people. Let me just tell you, for example, when I took over a U.S. power generating company, we had, in in a given year, 10 percent of the generating capacity of our company was out of service at any given moment in time to be repaired. It was forced out of service and had to be repaired. Um, boiler tube leaks occurred, et cetera. And one year later, we had 1% of our generating capacity out of service in any given year. So, so we it took it down from 10% to 1%. The American average is somewhere around 6%, 7 8%. Okay? How do we do that? The way we did that was by treating our people the way I described that we were treating them, by looking out for them, by taking a control room operator who had, whose wife had given birth prematurely on a vacation in Omaha and saying to him, we're gonna lend you the next three years of vacation. You need to be with your family so that these premature babies were born at six months and your wife has you there, go. And he would wanna come back and so we had shifts rearranged so that the person could work shift after shift in a concentrated period and then go back to Omaha for a significant period of time. That type of thing, that word gets out, and people decided that they were going to give back to us twice as much as what we gave them. Mm. And so on a summer afternoon, when the boiler was 200 degrees inside the boiler, and we had leaks that had to be welded shut, Mm. they would line up all the people, they would just line for their opportunity to go into that 200 degree boiler with ice packs over them and with right protective equipment, et cetera, for 30 seconds to weld that boiler tube leak and then to run out and get the next person into all well, the next boiler tube leak, etc., huh. so that we can be back on service Monday morning when the power plant was needed. Wow. And that's the kind of stuff that happened. And I really do believe that people have a really mistaken notion. It is not expensive. Everything I told you about the good things we did for our people, I believe that in the four and a half years or so, five years that I was CEO of a U.S. Power Generating Company, maybe cost us ten thousand dollars. And by getting our forced outage rates down from 10% to 1% alone, nothing else, we saved, we had added revenues in the millions of dollars. So, um, so, so, in other words, so the this critique, is
0: smart business. The critique that, hey, this stuff's expensive, it's, it's, it's too touchy-feely, it's going to hurt the bottom line, you're arguing that actually it's the other way around. A, it's not that expensive, and B, it will help the bottom line.
1: Exactly, and people are not going to abuse you. You know, a lot of people are cynical and they say, you do that and people will abuse you. They'll just, they'll just abuse the system. And that's so not the case. People really feel that they're seen as individuals, they're trusted, they're honored for what they're doing in every capacity that they're doing it at. They want to earn that trust and they will pay you back many times. So I think the challenge is to organize corporations so that the CEO of a huge corporation can't make the kinds of decisions that I made with 200 employees in New York. Okay, so there have to be rules, but I think the rule invo- in, also involves delegation. A CEO sets examples, and when I set an example like this, I noticed it was my foreman or my, super, my, my plant manager in Astoria, Queens, who basically called me and said, this control room supervisor needs, needs some time to be with his family. It was his idea, and that is great, because that, that value starts permeating the organization. People like doing the right thing. If they feel like they're being rewarded for it, and that was very effective. So I think that this could be kind of brought down in the organization yeah. and delegated.
0: And what advice would you have for students who are here and that you spoke with in class who might say, hey, that's all fine and good. You were the, you were the top dog. You had the corner office. You're the CEO. You had authority. Uh, what can I do at, at- my entry-level position in a company. I'm sort of, behold, I've got to play the game. This isn't the time for me to, to make waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you think? say to that? Alright, so I have a couple of thoughts. <laughs> Number one,
1: for you students here who are going to go out into the world of work, take a, take a lesson from what I did by knocking on the door of this partner twice a week because I wanted to work for that person. The point of the matter is you go into large organizations and you get assigned to something, but that doesn't mean that you can't actually try to get yourself into a position where you can do the kind of work, the kind of person you want to do by asking for it. Now that may mean a much greater burden on yourself because you may have two jobs to do, <laughs> the job that you've been assigned and the job with this other person, but you've got to ask for what you want. Mm. And you, you should ask, what's the worst that can happen? It won't happen, right? <laughs> but the best that can happen is, as in my case, it happened and my whole career followed that because that was really the beginning of my career. Mm. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, to act towards everybody with enormous decency and kindness secretaries messengers everybody you, you it 's easy to act up with some degree of you know humility and uh, deference you've got to act down sideways everybody the delivery person who brings lunch etc an individual created in the image of God that person most important people are going to watch how you how you deal with people I just read I was reading in a book um, when you're taking somebody out to dinner and you're interviewing that person for a job, what's the most important thing you need to watch in that dinner? The answer was, how did that person speak to the busboy, the waiter, um, et cetera? That's, you know, how does that person respect other human beings? And you can do that. The other point is really to not to gossip, to do all the things that are the right things just to recognize that you are on display and people are watching you, and they want to watch to see whether you have the characteristics of a leader. Can you, in fact, grow, get promoted, etc.? The way you show that you can grow is by being serious about the work, by speaking not in a sarcastic way. I think, incidentally, that there is never in life ever a reason to be sarcastic. Hmm. I have never, ever, ever seen appropriate sarcasm. Okay, Hmm. So, point number one to talk to people in a straight, honorable, respectful way. What you have to do is to point out to somebody in a position to be able to do something about it the understanding of what led that person to do that, a sensitivity to that, and a thought that there might be a better way to do it, and to do this in the kind of the right way so that people can say, that shows maturity, it shows judgment, it shows respect, and that's the kind of person that we would like to have who needed to progress in our company. So the beauty of this whole situation, talk about the integrating principle, is that morality is not only moral and kindness is not only good for the soul, but it's also so good for you as a practical matter. It's actually very constructive, very pragmatic, very, um, you know, it it works. If you were trying to be really cynical about it and to say, what is the best strategy I would want to take to get ahead, it's just to do all these wonderful things, I think, because (laughs) it really puts you in a position where you can actually put your energy into the substance of the work rather than some of the sideshows that go on. As the as saying
0: goes, virtue is its own reward and so exactly. ways, too. Exactly. Yes. Now, Jay, before we begin opening up to the audience for questions, which uh, look forward to hearing what people might want to have you elaborate on or ask different things, uh, one of the things I so appreciate about our conversation and friendship is that you're willing to share stories that uh, you look back at maybe a bit like the one person that you were compelled or yes. forced to, to fire, that you wanted to give him a second chance that you're willing to share stories where, where um, you wish you could have a mulligans or a do-over. Uh, if you don't mind, I know it's a painful story. You had an employee once who was a model employee, six, seven years of uh, uh, exemplary performance, a high flyer, and a very tragic thing happened. Uh, would you mind so, sharing that story I'd and, and what to. you, in hindsight, might do differently? I'd be glad to. So this was a story
1: of somebody who, for six or seven years, at a law firm was the most exemplary person, treated everybody with respect, did magnificent work, was viewed as a, a rising star in the company. This person one day um, becomes a subject of a report that our executive committee received um, of, our, of our law firm from an accounting person saying they did a random audit, they do random audits, and they found that this person's expense report had, in fact, been doctored, that there was $2,000 of false expenses um, on it, personal expenses that were, in fact, reported to be business expenses, and that was reported to us. And um, we then spoke about that and designated a partner in our litigation department who was in charge of ethics of the firm to look into that situation and to report back to the executive committee um, on the situation to find out, is there a basis for it, and, and, and to make recommendations to what we should do. That person did uh, call in this uh, associate, talk to the associate, told the associate that he, the partner wanted the associate not to say a word, but to listen to the partner. And the partner basically said to him, here's what we've been told. I would like you to think about this and to come back to me tomorrow and tell me what the facts are about this. And by the way, I think you should hire a lawyer. Okay. now what does that mean? What's that all about, you should hire a lawyer? In the law, if a person, if a law, if an admitted lawyer, as we all are admitted to the bar, um, learns of a lawyer who has done something unlawful, that lawyer has the obligation to report that event, that action to the appropriate authorities, which in this case would be the disciplinary committee of the Bar Association.
0: So essentially in addition to being in trouble with the law firm, you you, as employer, he was also uh, at risk with the American Bar Association. His whole career was perhaps tumbling down before him. And by virtue of being told you better get a lawyer, essentially he was being told we think you're guilty or
1: we think that we're basically thinking that if, if you are, we're going to report this to the state right. bar. And so fast forward, what, fast what forward. plays out? Okay, so what plays out is the guy comes back the next day, says to the partner, I want you to know there's no truth to this allegation. I did not do these things. You will have documents to show that I did not do these things. And um, goodbye, leaves the office, and heads out of the building towards home, never gets home. Three days later, his body was found in the Hudson River. He, fell, he jumped off the George Washington Bridge. Now, what I, I learned a lot of things from that. First of all, the executive committee should never have delegated responsibility for this. This was a person we knew was an upright character who had shown the most um, excellent conduct, behavior, and ethics. For a long period of time. Um, the partner involved made a mistake, a serious, devastating mistake, in referring to a lawyer before he knew what the facts were. Um, and what I also learned was we weren't thinking about it in a framework that made any sense. In retrospect. What do you mean by that? Okay. And retro- we were thinking about this. This is a It's a legal issue. It's a legal issue. There was theft of $2,000. There's a disciplinary issue. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we need to get to the bottom of the facts. As if when we found, if we were to find out that, in fact, he had done it, that would be the end of the conversation. But that's not the end of the conversation. It wasn't even the beginning of the conversation. The answer is, we knew this person. What caused this person? Do we believe that this person was, in fact, a person who, would ordinarily do something like this, take $2,000 from the firm and jeopardize his career? Couldn't we have other options? Why were we not thinkers out of the box to think about what else could be done here? There were lots of things we could have done, right? We could have viewed this as a medical issue. We could have said to ourselves, if this were true, this person obviously must be under such enormous stress or something else is going on because it is so inconsistent with this person's whole manner of conduct for six years where we saw this person every single day and knew what kind of person it was, point number one. Point number two, we could have thought, all right, this person needs to be punished. But until we know more about it and we get our handle on it, why don't we just tell the person not to come to work for a couple of months, take a leave of absence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can all, in the breadth of our thinking, think about another way to deal with it that postpones it, gives us time to think. Oh. about the situation and to think about it potentially in a more constructive way. It is true that in every company, I would say again, just as in the case of the false resume, cheating on your expense account will get you fired. Okay. Every company will fire that person. That's consistent with American ethics. Oh. But did that person have to be fired? and have to be reported to the Bar Association? Couldn't we have thought about talking to the Bar Association about the events after we uh, knew something about it? Or after we put this person into medical uh, treatment? Um, It's that we weren't thinking very broadly. And and I would just say to you this, that um, it goes again to the, the difference between morality, looking at a person created in the image of God, and just saying, that person has to be dealt with as an individual. This is not about my policy that says, if you falsify your expense account, you get fired, and you get reported oh. to the Bar Association. This is a person, and we should think about it, and what's the appropriate? Yeah. What is the appropriate punishment for it for a person who has had this track record?
0: You know, in our, in our business ethics class, we've been talking broadly speaking about, uh, this is built on uh, Niebuhr's model, three different ways, or schools, intellectual traditions of thinking about ethics, that there's the right, the good, and the fitting, and right has this rules-based, deontological nature. There's right and wrong. And then there's this, uh, the good, well, there's good and bad, or good and evil, and this third category of fitting and unfitting, or appropriate and inappropriate, it sounds like you have a real heart for that third category.
1: Yeah, and I would just say to you that one lesson that I learned in my career is that there are, it is very hard to find an easy, easy decision that involves punishment of people that really should not be thought about. I mean that... These are difficult decisions. These decisions in the practical world are often very difficult decisions and they cannot be taken by saying, well, you know, it's just one person and I have 200,000 other employees. You know, I mean, that's not it. We, a life was destroyed. Now, I can't say that, in all honesty, I should not have been able, I should not hold myself accountable for not predicting that he might have done something like that. That was really an outlier of a reaction, I think, to it. Because that person still had the ability to come and talk to us. He could have come and talked to us. He knew that he had relationships with us. Because the point was he couldn't look at himself in the mirror. He had so violated his own standards of what was right, he couldn't actually deal with himself and his family. Um, so my, my, my thought on this is that it is really very much the issue of changing our focus from ethics to morality just dealing with the individual.
0: Well, thank you, you know, as we open up now to questions, I just, one last thought, in fact, we commented on this uh, a little bit earlier, many people who aren't familiar with Judaism, uh, let alone different sort of reform or orthodox, et cetera, might be surprised, their stereotype may, might be, well, Judaism is all about laws. It's about being law compliant, being obedient. Uh, and, and the, that's a very Christian definition exactly Exactly. Isn't, and isn't that sort of interesting how we all learn and, and what you have done is, is reminded all of us and myself included that that's a, that's a really unfortunate stereotype isn't it? That there's teachings of mercy and grace and, and that's really what you're accenting in how you think about it mm-hmm. uh, and I think when people think of someone who says Sabbath observant and dietary uh, customs and that there's a, a legalism to that and you're going way beyond legalism in your thoughts so I thank you for thank you. illuminating all of us. In that it's very much. Uh, questions? Yeah, Sing Sing. I see your hand first. Oh, there you go. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going back to the topic on justice in mercy, um, in those two stories, both of the both of the two people involved, they had a redeeming quality to them. Um, so if
1: knowing what you know now, and a situation like this comes up again, but a person hasn't had the chance to. redeem hasn't shown any redeeming qualities, would you still show any
0: mercy? So if someone's not shown redeeming qualities, yes. would you still show this mercy? Or at some point, do you have to fire someone for these conduct reasons?
1: The person acted at the firm
0: for only three days when we found out something like this. I mean,
1: in other words, we didn't know the person. We had no idea this was really a just, upright, ethical person, basically. It's a very tough, um, tough question. Because really, what it gets to is the issue of whether a corporation can be expected to take the time and the energy necessary to go into the depth of analysis that's needed for every individual where there isn't a real stake in the company, a relationship, or something else like that. The answer to your question, Sing Sing, has to be it has to be that that person is deserving of the same kind of attention. When that person gets fired, having been at the firm for three days, after being unemployed, let's say, for three years, okay, and has a job for three days and is not fired, that person's life is devastated too, right? So it's not a light thing. The fact that the person hasn't been there for a while doesn't mean that I, can't view, I shouldn't view that person as a fully deserving being. It makes it a much tougher, and I have to say, I to thank you for the question that really means
0: that I Other questions? Yeah, Connor. Um, I was hoping to go back to the situation where <coughs> you were fighting your, your board and about firing uh, that one killing. Um, what was going through your mind after you find out your board's kind of low-read your decision? Um, you know, for, personally for me, maybe this is just because I might be weaker or whatever. I'm maybe be happy that um, the company might be in its best interest you know, in terms of the IPO and things like that, this person is fired, But also, I got to visually display my you know, compassion. Yeah, so maybe I feel a little bit um, or maybe not. Or maybe you're still so uh, convinced of your beliefs that it's still dissatisfying. You know, but the fact that we came back to this question um, later makes me want to keep digging into it, because you said you felt some sort of regret. So I remember really what was actually going your, your mind at that moment, not necessarily what just happened. Um, if that's all right. so could you summarize the question in case right. the yes. mic didn't pick it up? Yes, yeah.
1: the question is a very good question, which is uh, what was I thinking when I got um, the decision from...
0: Essentially overridden. your I was
1: essentially overridden. Right. Um, because of this IPO situation. Um, I think what went through my mind was it's not irrational on the part of the board to think that there was a base of concern. Um, and I really stopped. I stopped the fact that, uh, Because I couldn't argue that they were irrational in they were thinking. I understood a business judgment that was being reached. And I did not weigh heavily enough the extraordinary moral effect of it. Um, frankly, today I can think of three different, five different compromises that I could suggest to the that would have gotten him off the premises, off the payroll, such as leave of absence or something like that. Um, would have deferred the issue, and would not would have allowed us not to do. To make this guy, who was actually a good guy, who came up with all this stuff about corruption that took place, and who was retaliated against by this stuff coming to light, basically a that person. I think he should have been protected. So you know, I think one of the things, good things about just having this conversation is that. You are all about to enter, you are students here, into great careers, and you will have lots of issues coming your way. Hopefully none as sad as the the ones that I just mentioned. Um, And just to think about the fact that it is okay to think about other alternatives. It's not just fire or not fire. Mm -hmm. There are ways to say, punish, postpone, deal with it in some other way. And we really do have the responsibility to think about other options. And I don't think that the human resource model actually thinks about a lot of options of how to deal with a person oh. for the unique circumstances. Oh. So that's your challenge. Huh. Yeah,
0: Nicole. Um, you discussed the difference
1: between what you think to ethics means and what morality means. Um, so I was wondering, which do you think is more important for the workplace? And also, ha- what from your experience have you found is the best way to convey this message and kind of close the gap between the upper-level employees and the lower-level employees? So your question is, what is more important from the business corporation's point of view, um, and, and, and I think that question, let me answer that question, and I'll answer the second question as well. Um, from my perspective, we need rules of ethical conduct that can be set out in a piece of paper that every employee gets, which is these are our expectations of our employees. I think that's perfectly appropriate to have. I think where the moral issue the children of God issue um, comes into place is when you're actually dealing with the consequence of a violation and and how to look at a violation for the penalty. I think that code of conduct, um, ethical codes that say X will result in automatic dismissal is not the right thing to do. I think it results in injustice because in some cases X May in fact, there may be some mitigating factors. So that to me, that message um, has to be we, we will have codes of conduct, we will have ethical codes, but that the certainly the, the senior management of different departments and of the firm need to understand that there is a range of, of appropriate um, responses to each of these actions and that No one response can be used in every circumstance. And how does that get communicated downward? I think if people start seeing that they're being treated in a way that really reflects the right thing to do and they start seeing the right thing done more frequently, I think that would really improve morale. So, but I think it has to, you know, obviously, it's going to have to be executed by people in a position of leadership so that it can kind of filter through the
0: organization over a period of time. You could tell what expectations Jay has for all of you. Yes. Well, one last question if anyone has one. Yeah, please. Um, just like kind of based on uh, your previous, like, oh, sorry, okay. uh, Just based on uh, your previous work experience at uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, address kind of like the. Um, Now like uh, the more negative public perception toward finance and like misconceptions with it and possible also like justifications uh, for it. So misconceptions or accurate conceptions of the negative uh, reputation that Wall Street has earned itself in the past few years. Look,
1: this is the same issue of painting with a broad brush, um, major institutions of the economy, right? So there clearly was some improper, inappropriate um, conduct that was taking place, particularly with respect to the marketing of certain types of mortgage-related securities. Um, CMOs, the CDOs, and so forth. Exactly. Um, But at the same time, these organizations have done enormous good. I mean, these organizations have helped countries like China, Mexico, India, Indonesia, etc., enter the capital markets, um, get capital, grow, um, do the right kinds of strategic transactions. When I was at Lehman Brothers, we were advising the government of Indonesia on the largest power project that they had ever done. We were advising in India on the largest power project that India um, had ever done. We were doing roads in. Um, Taiwan and all kinds of other places. We were basically bringing the capital through the US capital markets, which the US investment banks really had a major, major, um, major excellence in. And so the world became a better place because infrastructure got built, and they got built because capital was being brought and capital was being marshaled by the US financial institutions. Um, There's a lot of good that came out of those firms. And frankly, much more good than bad. in each of these firms. The whole idea of liquidity of markets and the fact that we all feel comfortable putting money into Vanguard or pension funds or other things knowing that there is some organized marketplace um, in it that has liquidity and that a little trade won't cause collapses of the markets because there's massive and depth of liquidity, that's, thank you very much, financial institutions of the United States and, and other major countries which is a major underpinning of our American economy, the willingness to invest, et cetera. So I would just say that uh, my own view is that the fault that's been laid at the footsteps of some of these institutions is well-deserved in many circumstances, but the broad brush in my mind is extraordinarily inappropriate because fundamentally they are doing a great deal for um, for lubricating the American economy and the economies of much of the world, including developing countries.
0: Jay, I, th- I thank you very much for your time, your wisdom, your passion, which is so clear. Uh, I'll close with a, a, a Talmudic saying that you shared with us today, and it's one of my favorite ones as, as well, that the, as the teaching goes, the rabbinical story goes, that when someone ends their, their life and they're the entering the heavenly courts, the very first question they're asked, the very first question is, did you conduct your business affairs honestly? It's a powerful question. I think it's fair to say that you certainly seek to do that, and we thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Thank you. How very about a much. round of applause? Thank you.